Welcome to episode 102 of the Synergen Leadership Podcast. Have you ever thought about how people are responding to the ever-changing digital landscape? Would you like some practical suggestions to how to deal with it? Well, my name is Julian Carl, and I'm the CEO and the co-founder of Synergen Group. And today's episode, we're going to answer those two questions. So we are back for season three of our podcast, and my purpose for the podcast continues to be the same, to raise the standard of leadership. In today's show, I speak with David Banger, who is the author of Digital is Everyone's Business, A Guide to Transition. David is an author, advisor, adjunct professor, and speaker. An internationally recognized innovator, he is a thinker and a pragmatist. And his expertise lies in offering unique and concise insights that enable organizations and their people to realize their technology and digital potential. He founded Change Lead Practical Digital in 2018 and now works with CEOs, executives, CIOs, and their teams. His international career of three decades has spanned multiple industries, much of it involving transformation and the next stage of something. David has lived in London from 2001-2010 and is now based in Melbourne. He's been employed across many industries, including construction, engineering, professional services, technology, management consulting, and financial services. In 2018, David completed MIT's strategic driving strategic innovation in Switzerland, and he's very much an advocate of their practice-based research, and this does bring a lot of benefit to his clients. Since 2015, he's been a member of the Business School Industry Advisory Board, and he's an adjunct professor of Swinburne University of Technology. Now, during the course of the conversation, we explore his book in detail. Start off by asking David why did he decide to write the book? We speak about making meaning of our work and how we can align teams. We discuss a warning David makes about design thinking, lean and agile. And I finish the interview by asking David about what does the future hold. So keep listening. As always, we'd really like to hear your thoughts about the interview with David Banger, author of Digital is Everyone's Business, A Guide to Transition. Season 3 of the Synergen Leadership Podcast with Julian Carl. Join Julian as he speaks with leaders and authors from Australia and around the world, giving you the opportunity to share in their journey and learn from their expertise and knowledge. Julian also shares some of the tools and techniques he uses as a leader, mentor and facilitator, helping you to build your leadership capability and improve your confidence as a leader. Well, thank you, David, for coming out to Synergen HQ and uh, recording a podcast with with us. Really appreciate it. Pleasure to be here, Julian. So that everyone has a bit of an idea of who you are, who is David Banger? Thanks, Julian. I probably do three things for organisations. I advise executive groups on the potential of their technology, the intersect of digital within their business. I coach technology teams on how to realise their contribution within that. And I help organisations determine their digital future. I've had a, quite an interesting career. I've worked across seven different companies, spent 10 years working in London and multiple industries, but I've really now returned to my roots in Melbourne and I'm servicing a range of clients nationally. And alongside that, I do some pro bono work at Swinburne where I've been an adjunct professor for the last five or six years. I chair one board, I sit on another board and I really enjoy that as well. So we're here to talk about your book, Digital is Everyone's Business, A Guide to Transition. Why did you decide to write the book? I, as a former executive, had consumed a lot on digital. And I'd also read a lot on working and workspaces. And I really felt there wasn't a guide 
to take organisations through where they are today to where they could actually be. And there wasn't a guide that enabled them to build the capability within their organisation, within their people to actually do that. And the book was really written for three audiences, a executive audience within an organisation who is non-technical, a vendor community, and I've met lots of good vendors, but not many great ones. So thinking of them. And also, finally, that emerging CIO who actually needs to move probably away from the traditional technology and working in technology to working across a business and contributing to it. So that's why I wrote the book. Well, I'd like to, to start the intro with a, a bit of an excerpt, if I can, and from the introduction. The 2020s loom large for organisations and many are considering their digital strategies. Many have digital intentions but are uncertain of what needs to be actioned. There are a range of opportunities for organisations willing to explore their digital potential and consequences for organisations continuing a traditional path. Are your hands getting dirty? This can have two meanings. You have become involved in something where the realities might compromise your principles. Or two, you are stuck in an ivory tower dictating strategy but prepared to put in the effort and hard work to make the details actually happen. This book aims to help avoid the first and enable the second and I use the dirty acronym to outline the sections of the book. Very memorable acronym there. So at a high level, what's what's sort of dirty? Well, dirty, we sort of reverse in the book and we start with your mindset. So are you in a position within your organization to actually learn? And what is the learning appetite within that organization and how open are people to sharing their thinking? And then moving through to technology and the transparency of technology and how important that is actually going to be as we look at some of the subsequent steps. How relevant is your organisation with an emphasis on risk, but also making sure that people remain really relevant in the broader industry that you operate within and humanising the organisation. Then the old chestnut of innovation, is it something you do in addition to or something within an organisation and having a longer term aspiration and some shorter-term technical initiatives, and then finally we conclude on digital, which I have no doubt will break out, but really trying to take a little bit more of a science to actually when, how, and what you do with digital. And that's what I've found with a lot of the clients that I'm working with is that they're doing some experiments, but without applying some science prior to that. Okay. Well, I want to dig uh, quite deep into, into the, to the book, and, and you start by suggesting that organisations are really continuing with non-value-adding work. So when you say that, how do you mean? Well, I think there's two things that we run the risk of in a digital world is being digitally numb. I, we think our organisation is immune to this and I don't believe everybody will be disrupted. I actually don't believe that. But I do think your business is not going to be the same as it was today in the future. And then being digitally dumb. And that's taking an existing piece of work and bringing that into the digital world. And so... Instead of starting the book with digital and technologies, actually organizations just need to have a look at the type of work they're doing. And we've built that out in a profile called a pre-digital assessment. And that then in helps inform them what they should continue with. Okay. And I suppose the one of the challenges with, with, with technology and everything is, is the idea of this growth mindset. And I think one of the challenges a lot of organizations face is you know, embracing the whole digital space. So why is growth mindset so important because i think a lot of the answers within an organization for removing the traditional work and how people are rewarded possibly for the volume of work and not the value of their work is the first step in organizations realizing their digital potential 
they have to remove, eliminate or automate that work. And within this model that we've, we have within the book that I've written, there is the undertaking work, which is reactive, individualistic. People know what's going on. When something goes wrong, they say, oh, I can't believe we're still doing that. And they need to, they know it needs to be addressed. There's also the individualistic work that potentially the younger generation goes out and says, I need to change this place. I'm going to go off and do something. And they become a sole explorer. And that probably in a lot of the times doesn't realize the potential because when we look at the innovation of the past, we know that diverse teams bring that to that, bring that to the fore for them. And then finally, there's a, there's a model around being in the lounge where there's a collective consensus, where we're quite comfortable with the status quo. We actually think we're immune to some of the things that are happening externally. And that's probably the most difficult of the three. And that probably requires some leadership challenge, changes and some challenges to the existing style of leadership and how they're approaching. And they probably need to look initially within to actually transform to be more relevant externally. I'm always fascinated with the idea of uh, what the future is. And you talk about the idea that current work is not the future. So talk to me a little bit about that. One of the quotes I really, really like, and I've included a series of pictures and quotes within the book is, it really resonated with me was your focus determines your reality by George Lucas. And as I said, within the pre-digital assessment, some of that work is going to pollute your thinking possibly around how your business could operate or should continue to operate. And I really think organizations need to start by challenging the existing work. And that thinking is not only polluted at the senior levels of the organization, it's also polluted within it. And it becomes very cluttered and people become very stuck. And organizations talk about, look, we need to break out of the, that state and we're going to set up a startup precinct or we're going to do an innovation hub. The reality is those things sit alongside the organization. And the people within the organization, if they don't address the work, they're still going to continue to endure. And the people that organizations put into a startup precinct are probably not ready for a startup either, because otherwise they'd be doing one. So you've really got to, got to get into the, the nuts and bolts of some of this, this activity that's happening within the organization. Look at what needs to be different and then start a transition and continue to transition and evolve. So you, when it comes to assessing this, this work, you, you mentioned that uh, there's four, four profiles. Are we able to, to go into those just a little? Yeah, I, I touched on them earlier. As I said, there's this undertaking work, which is very reactive, individualistic, and probably quite traditional. And it's just accepted that that's how we operate. And some of that work actually hasn't been looked at for a long period of time. It's in a safe pair of hands and really presents risk in a digital world to an organization. We look at that sole exploring work where an individual will go out and explore something, but actually probably doesn't fit within the organization, doesn't fit within the strategy, and probably doesn't have that diverse group of people working on it. Because we know, as I said earlier, that innovation is made up of a diverse contribution of thought. And then finally, that lounging piece where the organization is just stuck. To understand this model and apply it, and there's a range of things that we do to apply it uh, with organizations, will make the first step in getting some transparency of what needs to change. Mm. Uh, when you do that with organizations, how, how do they respond? Well, the first piece is you need to work with the leadership team because there's a real tendency for the leadership team to sit back and, and sort of be 
knocked back a little bit and saying, wow, how, how have we enabled this to happen? And I, I often talk to leaders within the organization about you need to be the lighthouse and not the light. Hmm. You need to give people hope and you need to know when they're getting close to the rocks, metaphorically, that you're actually there for them and you'll guide them away from that. Also, I think you need to understand that it's probably not going to be a short burst of work. You may actually do some immediate remediation in the first 100 days, but this mindset of you uncovering the work, unlocking the valuable work, and that's what it's really about and removing the non-valuating work, is part of a transition. And you also then need to think about how you continue to align your teams as part of that transition. So as a leader being vertically aligned, I think leaders do a lot around stakeholder management and getting horizontally aligned within an organization within their peer group, but aligning their organization within so the decisions when they're not present would be consistent with based on the organizational values, based on where we're going as an organization is quite important. And then starting to have those teams share their experiences, whether it be through in, informal vlogs, blogging, stand-ups, whatever it is, but actually starting to build some momentum around this movement is really important. Yeah, and you mentioned the aligning the teams. What are some of the, the challenges you found that leaders face when they try to do that? They tell rather than seek to understand. They talk rather than listen. And therefore, there is a lot, a lot left unsaid. And within the book, a little bit further on, I talk about the fact that technology teams, a lot of them are made up by really smart introverts. And actually engaging an introvert and giving them time to speak is actually quite important for you to realize their possible contribution. And that's probably where I spend a fair amount of my time advising a leader trying not to rush, create the time and the space with the groups of people that they're working with. And that sometimes may actually be them being absent in some of these meetings. Mm. So real conversations can be had. Yeah. You're right that we need to lift the mystique and take off the technology handbrake. So first of all, what, what's the mystique? And then secondly, why do we have this technology handbrake on? As, as I mentioned earlier, pre, pre-interview, I have about four or five clients. And if I look at the symptoms of why I'm contacted by a C-level within a potential organization is they're just uncertain. They're uncertain of what's going on within the technology team. They're uncertain of the capability that they actually have there's not a clear understanding around the apportion of budget and where it, where it's going and where it needs to go in the future. And the myst- there, there is a mistake. And in the past, people referred to that as a black box. I think that's overused. But really getting transparency of costs, understanding the technology strategy, understanding the processes within an organization and how technology supports that is important. And it creates an element of trust when you start to be transparent about the good and they're not so good things. And trust is going to be really important as a foundational step for you to realize your digital potential because the technology team is going to be involved in some of that activity down the track. And finally, I'd say that when you build trust, you can't ask for it. You have to demonstrate some transparency and have some empathy for the person who is receiving that information that may be a little bit uncomfortable. It actually may not be what they expected from the technology team. There may be some things that actually aren't going to be realized in the timeframes and have some empathy for that individual and try and build that connection. And that's what I spend a lot of my time with 
uh, talking to executive groups, it's sometimes it's not about what they're doing. It's about choosing to stop doing some things. Mm. So it's very much about focusing on the, 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 the people element of technology as opposed to the technology side of technology. It is. And organizations get a little bit stuck sometimes. And I touch on it in the book around capability and currency. So there's people who are exceptionally technically capable within an organization, but they're not technically current. And so therefore they're not that relevant. And as a result, through tenure, through long affiliation, it's these are difficult conversations, but how do we get these people either current or how do we move to a more current practice event within our technology team? And that is all about people. Mm-hmm. You talk about this idea of uh, process and introverts, and uh, I'm curious in because you mentioned before that sometimes the, the, these people are are more introverted when it comes to the, the digital space. So, why is this idea of process so important? A couple of reasons. Process actually helps you identify where there's pain points, existing pain points, and that is part of the science, as I as I mentioned earlier, but also. It's a little bit like, and I use an analogy within the book, uh, men's sheds and the ability to get men to talk about difficult topics. The process is something that you can talk about that depersonalizes a difficult topic and where it's breaking down or where it could actually be better. And I've literally sat in rooms where we've mapped the process along a wall. People have identified through a green post-it what's going well. They've identified area of opportunities through another colored post-it. And then we've been able to have conversations that have never been had before because we're actually starting to talk about something, not someone. And it also allows the room to focus on something. And you can see when somebody's processing something on that area of focus. And as a facilitator, you actually then invite them to make their contribution. And that's where I've literally seen introverts get out of their chair and actually say, look, I've been thinking about this for a long time. I've never really said anything about it, but this is what we should actually do. And then they rattle off a series of suggestions that then ignites a conversation that was probably never going to be had and results in an outcome that was probably never going to be realised if that hadn't occurred. Mm. So the, the with with a team like that, the key role of the, the leader is essentially to to draw out that knowledge and create that environment where they can articulate that. Yes. And I often talk with my clients around my executive team, I say, look, I need to mentor you on where the industry is going, but I actually need to coach your technology team on how to be more efficient, more facilitative in their approach, particularly the leadership group, and be more open. Everything is not black and white all the time, and it's not binary. And understanding that, I think, is quite important in order to get these introverts to step out and make the right contribution. And you, you mentioned that uh, it's important to sustain transitions, that uh, poor risk management capability often slows down and potentially destroys an organization's potential. How do businesses make sure that they are uh, got their head around the risk and are sustaining these transitions into a digital world? It's, it's, it's really challenging. If you're sitting in a large enterprise at the moment, and we, let's not reference names, but we see every other week a chairman, chairperson leaving an organization, a CEO leaving an organization. It's happened again this week, a very predominant public organization around, you know, the media will grab on this around systemic failure. And nobody in that organization had the intent 
of having systemic failure within that organization. But they've come dependent on some external capabilities. And one of those external capabilities is a risk capability. And there's risk professionals set up, quality assurances people set up. And one of the things I've learned through my executive career is I actually don't want to be dependent on a third party in a moment of truth where they may not be present. I want my team to have that risk capability. And giving them the clear understanding of a simple risk management methodology is important. So a risk is possibly something that could happen, an issue is something that has happened, and then a control actually presents some of those issues occurring. And ideally, you know, it's really important to have primary controls and they may be provided by external third parties. And if you're talking about technology, it may be an actual technology provider. You're going to have some organizational controls by security team. And ideally, what I say to the teams that I work with, you don't want to have many local controls. You actually want to push those controls onto those third parties because those local controls are temporary at best and have a high probability of failure in the longer term and removing that. And then inherent and residual risks, what can you actually accept as an issue that will occur in your business and, and how long can you live with that for? And the other the other piece around this, it, it gets organizations to have potential conversations and I'm a big believer in conversations about speaking things that are unsaid. And we know that in some of the broader scandals, when we look back in history, that people actually knew something was going on. There was an amber floating in that organization that ignited a fire. And that little spot fire was possibly ignored. And by having people understanding this, this, this framework, actually, we don't have a control for that fire. What is the control that we can actually implement on a temporary local basis? And then how do we actually engage some third parties to, or, or the right parties within our organization to have a more sustainable control? And these are the things that I think are going to be really important in the digital world because once you actually have a, di a pure digital business model and you probably have a traditional and a hybrid digital business model, problems will be exacerbated quite quickly. And that's something that organizations need to be prepared for and they need to have a capability within to manage the risk of that. And do you think the organisations you're working with are actually looking at risks through that strategic lens? Are they really starting to get the picture? I think at this point in time, they're experimental. And, you know, we have some industries, and if we look at a book that's, that I referenced within my book by, by Peter Well, an MIT professor, is that the financial services sector and the technology industry are very successful digital businesses. In actual fact, they're not without their problems, as we know. But those businesses that start to contemplate digital are more experimental in nature. And when we start to, when I start to experiment with those organisations on their digital journey, I start to say to them, "Let's put some some safety around this." And I'm not talking about being safe decisions, but some safety and mitigate the potential consequences, and get your teams into that discipline to think about risk, think about issues, and think about how, they, how a lot of these can be averted. And that is really good practice when we start to have some of these experiments within these organizations. You talk about managing your career. Yeah. And I, I think, in my experience, a lot of leaders may, may be struggling with where the digital world is going and how to keep up with technology. So... What should they do to sort of start to really consider how they're going to manage their career? I think there's an opportunity for both 
large organizations and individuals. And often when I've been employed by a large organization, I've probably limited my external online presence. And now I'm working for myself and I've set up my company site. I've set up my davidbanger.com. And then I've really thought about how I'm taking my online presence. And my online presence would be no different if I was working in a large organization. I don't post controversial things. I don't take extreme positions on things. And that's probably because of the nature of the individual I am. But I think a lot of people, 99% of people are actually very sensible and they want us to live in a better world. They want to leave the world a better place than when they entered it. And I talk about, you know, are we prepared to allow employees to have their own domain? So mm. if you're listening to this and, and your name, davidbanger.com, as example, is available, buy it. Just buy it. I, I spoke to a very successful entrepreneur the other week. And he said, I read your book and I've done one thing. I went and bought my name. <laughs> I'm not using it yet, but I bought it. And then thinking about what are the five to 10 things that you know really well? And how can you start to share that within the broader external community? When I went to Startup Grind, it was really interesting. You hear their story and they, they had their first meetup four or five years ago and there was two people that went to it. Over six months, the group sort of grew, you know, tens of people started to go to it. And then over over four or five years, because they've been absolutely steadfast in what they know and what they're passionate about, which I'll lead into in, into another, another piece, is they've been able to build a community and they've been really consistent with their values around that, what they know and the community they want to build. And so start sharing those things that you actually know. And, you know, for me, the things that I'm passionate about is business. I really... When I take on an engagement and the CEO brings me in or the COO, I actually want to understand the business first. And then I actually want to understand what people's expectations within that business are, who are the key influencers. And then I talk about the technology within the business. I don't want to look at the technology first. And often I'll be asked by a CFO and they're thinking about how they limit the possible time. And I'll say, look, you can limit my time. I can look at your technology, but ultimately you're, you're missing a whole piece of value in engaging me. And so really what what is these individuals passionate about and what could that actually mean for them as they start to build their online presence and possibly an online community? I think the other thing is that except that you may not always be in full-time employment and what is your parachute and what does that actually look like? And for me, I always wanted to write a book. I've always, I, I registered changelead.com, which is my business's uh, URL, 15, 16 years ago, I think, uh, before my first child. And I always had that vision at some stage that was going to be part of my future, David Banger. And then understanding that not everybody will value what you put out there. And that's okay. And occasionally you'll get a controversial comment or you'll have an interesting phone call. And don't let that sort of detract from what you believe in, what you're passionate about and the community that you're trying to serve. And what's that one thing that really motivates you? Go back to that. And I often say this, you know, to individuals that I speak to and I coach people within some of my some of my packages that I do for clients is that, you know, what's that one thing that keeps you really buoyant? And for me, I, I just love listening to that Steve Jobs, Stanford Address and connecting the dots. There's a whole raft of things that I probably paraphrase to others. But I go back to that and that really keeps me buoyant when I've got moments of uncertainty and you will do. But these are the things that you should do. Mm. I find that really fascinating because I often look at my LinkedIn feed and my LinkedIn feed is slowly and surely becoming less and less relevant to me because it's being filled with 
people trying to tell me how to use LinkedIn uh, ads and, uh, you know, photos of people at awards and things like that, which I appreciate. I actually don't see a lot of leaders who are working in organizations posting good mm-hmm. good stuff or even just their thoughts on leadership. And I, I think the world would be a much better place if people, I think, took on some of your practical suggestions here, and that's on pages 78 and 79 when you buy the book, uh, and start to do these things because I think you know that diversity of thought is really important. It is, and... I, I wrote a blog last week. I don't know if you've read it, but it touched on the fact that my LinkedIn feed is being polluted and I'm taking a stance not to like as much as I'm wrapped for the individual who's won the award and it should be celebrated accordingly, but or I'm at this industry event. Here I am meeting this person and you know, in the past I've, worked, I've met Guy Kawasaki, I've met Steve Wozniak and there's a couple of other individuals. They actually haven't appeared on my LinkedIn feed as a photo. Mm. Now, some of those photos may have appeared in relation to a blog around innovation or thinking differently and those sorts of things as the image, but haven't appeared independently. And I, I challenge people who are listening to think about their LinkedIn feed, think about what they're participating in and think about not posting a volume of stuff, but posting valuable items and encouraging others to do the same. And for that, I think people then start to reconnect on the right platforms. And there's some people I follow that I've, I, I find really fascinating, which we'll probably touch on as we get towards the end of this. Yeah. You also write at, uh, that there's lots of talk going on and what actually works with this whole digital side of things. Yeah, well, we, t- we touch on innovation first and Geez, I've been a part of some great organisations and two organisations that I've, that I've been a part of have been founder-led and one of them has hundreds, oh, over 100,000 employees and the other one has um, thousands of employees. And one of the things that was really evident to me in that culture was there was an acknowledgement there was somebody far smarter than you within that organisation and you would make an appropriate contribution and you wouldn't endeavour to take the stage for a long period of time. Unlike what I'm doing probably on this podcast, but <laughs> there is there was an acknowledgement that you're a part of something and you're not the something. And within innovation, I think organizations have thought about setting up innovation precincts, as I've said earlier. They've actually thought about, you know, dedicated time, dedicated roles, and that's been an additional to something. And you really need to bring the innovation within and set conditions. And that's what I sort of touch on in this section of the book, um, which is really how are you thinking about diversity of thought. And we often think about diversity of thought across generations. For me, I think it across geographies. I've had a range of global roles. And who are those in the emerging economies, the emerging geographies, who are actually being quite clever with very few resources? And, you know, those who've worked with me in the past know that I'm big on um, bringing international people into the teams that I've worked for because they just bring a completely different perspective. And not only that, the International Food Days are a really, really good fun. <laughs> um, so that's that's the first point. Uh, looking at technology and, and looking at actually what is necessary rather than what is interesting. And when you, when you discover what is necessary, you often find that you can move to the next generation of technology at a reduced cost. It just That's just the way it works. And we've seen that, you know, if we look at um, throughout history, we've seen that just, just occur and we've got 
the space missions, a whole raft of technology you know, that, that may enable man to go to the moon is now in our pocket. And there's just countless examples of that. But actually, what is really relevant to your business? Um, think about diversity with flexibility. And I worked in Europe for 10 years and I left Europe nine years ago and flexible working was just common practice there. You worked remote, you weren't working at home. There wasn't a sort of connotation that you're out playing golf or you're off mm. doing your shopping. And that enabled you to do deep work as opposed to shallow, interactive work. And I think organisations need to get their head around that flexible working is actually not a benefit, it's an enabler mm. for, for deep thinking. And not thinking about that, that, that in isolation. And I love the fact that I visited a technology campus and this, this company is a very successful organisation and they had really long grass alongside these paths. And I said, think, geez, they could mow the lawns. It'd be quite nice if they mowed the lawns. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they had a philosophy as casual connections spark ideas. And I think about a couple of the organizations I've worked at for, you know, who invested really early on, 10 or 15 years ago in internal coffee shops, creating the right spaces for those casual connections. And they believed in the same thing. And so really thinking about that and setting up those conditions within your organization for people to interact, converse, and work a little bit differently. Is, is important to setting the setting the conditions. And then that's that's quite tactical in nature, but having a, a broader aspirational dream, I think, is important. And we just touched briefly on Tesla. Their mission has remained exactly the same, being a, a sustainable electronic vehicle to the masses. And if you listen to Elon, you know, he had a three-point plan. It's now 3.5. It started with the Roadstar, low volume, high margin, moved to the Model X, which was a traditional sedan, you know, slightly less expensive, uh, not, not as much margin. And each stage of that innovation was applied to the next vehicle. He took that to the SUV version, the one with the wings of the doors, and now it's in the Model 3, which he wanted to call the Model T, but Ford didn't give him the rights, which is a mass market car with a very low margin. And what is the organisation dreaming of? And I think organisations will abstain from having a dream and they'll wait till the next strategic planning period, which may be six to 12 months, and that will turn into 18 to 24. And all of a sudden, they've lost two to three years. And I think actually putting a stake in the ground and saying, look, we've had this, we had this dream, and this is our contribution to the broader community that we serve. This is the type of business that we want to have, I think is, is actually quite important. And not enough organizations do it. Uh, and people within organizations actually want to be contributing something of greater meaning you often hear individuals that i work with actually talking around that so they want to be in a sustainable growing business but actually how are we making the world a better place yeah hmm. in, off the back of that you you you're right that these ideas that people have they have to be combined with business skills so how do we make sure that you know we're, we are encouraging ideas but we've also got the business skills to back it up yeah, this is this is really important because an idea is just an idea without the skills. And one of the things that I do within organisations is I, I build I build groups of people. I'm not going to say teams. I build groups of people from diverse reporting lines, and it's really fascinating when you see people enter this group. And it's a little bit like very early on, if you've been to a really great party and you didn't know many people, you sort of stand in the corner and stick to the people that you know. And then you bring these people into these meetings and often they're called a stig and I'll, I'll, you know, I reference it within the book. I've been using these for years, you know, systems, technology, innovation group or 
initiative group or information group. One of the organisations I was working with wanted to call it governance group, but it's not recommended. That was a fleeting thought. We didn't call it <laughs> governance at the end of it. But we bring them together and we bring the ideas into that group and with questioning the authority of the organisation in a respectful way. And, you know, we look at some of the great innovation of the past. We know that within the Silicon Valley mindset is that authority should be questioned, that hierarchy should be circumnavigated to actually explore and disrupt an organisation internally and don't look at conforming. And I'm a big believer that that people, and I referenced this in the earlier chapter, I think it's really important that people are themselves. They understand what they're good at, they understand what they're passionate about, and they endeavour not to be the same as everybody else within their organisation because I really want to tap into that. And then um, providing a creative framework around that. So with somebody who's got the idea can then look at how that would apply to the business and then look at the commercial skills around that and building these diverse groups of people. And as I said, as I began the story, it's a little bit like a party. And you know when these groups are humming really well is when they kick back after the session and they want to have the beer, they want to have the pizza, and they're actually people have actually built new friendships. And in actual fact, they're, they're, they feel like they're serving the greater good of the organization as well as serving the people that they're reporting into. And that's, for me, is where you get those casual connections. You start to build this innovation capability within and you start to enter this state of transition. Hmm. You talk about this idea of dreaming and strategic technical innovation. So talk to me about the, the, the dreaming and strategic technical innovation. I found that quite interesting, that idea. Well, as, as we sort of said, that I've been frustrated by lots of organizations, firstly, who have said, right, we're going to, work, we're going to go agile and that is going to be our source of innovation. I've also been frustrated by those organizations who said, okay, Julian, on Monday, you're in our startup precinct, you get to wear jeans and a black T-shirt. But they really haven't. It's all quite superficial. And I, I touch on Agile, and I just, I, I just want to touch on this because it's important for people to understand is that if you continue to do the same work in an Agile manner, you're actually going to exacerbate the problem because Agile increases throughput. And then you talk to an organization, they say, okay, we want to be a lean startup. Okay, so if you're applying the existing thinking within a lean startup mentality, you're proving something, you may not be proving something that is, it's, it's quite traditional in nature. And they go, okay, we'll go a little bit further up. We, we're going to go design and we're going to think about some of our problems and we're going to think about some of our customer problems. Well, you know, probably one, three cabs may have done that and then Uber completely rethought that. Two guys late at night in Paris not being able to get a cab to their hotel and then saying, you know what, this, this could be far easier and far simpler and building a process that drivers subscribe to and that you simplify the user experiences, really redefine that industry. Now, not everything in your organization will be like that. But if we think about these problems is reframing the problem from an external perspective, not your internal perspective, and acknowledging that dreaming takes time. So you need to set the conditions within your organization and i was on an earlier podcast and then people you know said to me the other week oh david that's i don't have the time for that i agree and that's only part of your innovation strategy but what is that longer term dream and aspiration and knowing that your first iteration is probably going to be low volume and you're going to need a little bit of higher margin on that and who in that community that you're trying to serve are that 
community that you want to target are prepared to pay for first generation product because of the novelty factor or because of the position that it takes in market mm-hmm. and then and then refining it over time mm-hmm. which I, is different to digital and we'll talk about digital in a minute yeah i really liked it when you actually had in there the I mean, the, the, the subheader is warning on design, lean and agile because I think, you know, the, the, those terms come up a lot in the conversations I have with, with, with our client base and, and it's, you know, it's almost like this thinking of, oh, it's the next best thing, it's a better jump on that bandwagon. I don't know if it actually does them any good. Yes, and it, it touches, you said the next best thing, I'm going to jump on that bandwagon. And I say within the book, and I, a couple of people I've spoken to have written testimonials of the book, and it really resonated with with one one somebody who wrote the testimony, who I, who, who I won't mention on this, but I said, what if you thought that you're not going to disrupt your industry? What if you actually thought you're just going to start a transition and in 6, 12, 18, 24 months, you're actually going to be different and you're going to look to differentiate yourself in your industry based on the learnings and having a growth mindset and stepping through this book? Rather than actually having this view that we're going to disrupt the industry and you know that large organizations don't like failing and you know that the reality is you probably don't have the capability within your organization to be the disruptor, but you can actually be the the differentiator. And I actually think that's where a lot of organizations, as I said earlier, won't be disrupted, they'll actually move to. And, you know, there's a range of industries that possibly could start thinking about that. You talk about the idea to that we need to simplify the digital complexity. So how do we do that? So there's three things. And for two to three years, or probably longer, for, since 2015, I really immersed myself in digital. I was a CEO somewhere and then I was appointed as a digital exec somewhere else. And, you know, I consume so much and there's a couple of good books. I really enjoyed Peter Well's book from MIT who he co-wrote with another MIT professor around what's your digital business model. But I, I really felt there was some learnings that I had earlier in my career around understanding the market and where you're at within a product or a service within the market. So organizations may be servicing a market, but they're servicing it with a product or a service. And if your product or service is early in market, you may be best complementing that with content rather than looking at a digital platform because you don't know what people will value. If it's in summer, you've got some understanding what it is valuing the mainstream market and building a transactional capability and looking at taking that onto a digital platform may be sensible. But if you're in a winter market and you're wanting to continue to milk that market, you may be best off just ignoring it from a digital perspective and the investment may be better off spent in some of those earlier markets. That's the first point. And then understanding that there are different things that will serve the digital world and people who interact within the digital world that were not relevant in the past. And I'll give you an example. Everything's searchable now. So brand previous performances is not that relevant. Customer references are relevant. External independent third parties are relevant. Thinking about switching costs so an example i use within the teams and i ask where organizations partner and i had a really interesting conversation with a third party around uh, around disrupting the tendering process in construction and them looking at possibly using maybe some uber data to unsolicited proposals to authorities to look at 
look, based on the traffic flows, we think this would be a good area of investment or a short interim piece of work without you having to do a full-blown tender. And that was quite interesting. Then we start to play that out. And I said, so what are you going to give up in that process? Well, we, you know, we've got the construction capability, et cetera. And I sort of said to, said to them, so who's going to own the customer? I said, because ultimately what you're going to be doing is you're going to be upskilling Uber in your industry and the tendering process. They've actually got the data. And in that scenario, there's no reason why once you've partnered with that organization as an example, that they could then find another partner or consider how they take your position in market if they wanted to. Um, these are the things that will be potentially exacerbated in the digital world. And then just thinking about the stages of digital, which is around content, you know, data, the transactional capability and the value within that, and then looking at how we establish that within a sustainable platform. And your platform may just be for your organization and the customers that you serve, or it may actually be for an industry. If we look at Amazon, they're serving across an industry. And they've been able to build a platform initially and then build that out across other range of businesses and service and industry. You may not actually achieve that, but when you hit the right market, looking at those points of differentiation and then looking at that platform, that's what enables you to serve. Hmm. You mentioned that transitions are better than transformations. This was interesting because I did a little bit of body work a little while ago and, and I was just reflecting on her title and it was Executive General Manager of Transformation. Yeah, it's probably a job I don't want. <laughs> yeah. so, so talk to me about why transitions are better than transformations. There's, so there's a lot of research on projects and large-scale projects and what what is successful. I think there's a number. I think there's an industry number. 20 to 30% of large projects are successful. McKinsey did a survey of digital transformations across their client base last year, 2018, and 16% of their clients said they were successful. So 85% of people were not successful. Interestingly, there was a further 7% or 8%, I can't remember the number roughly, it's within the book, that said they were successful, but they looked six to 12 months down the, down the line and they weren't. And so... If you're working in a large organization, why do you actually want to have a transformation where often that is something that happens to you and doesn't happen within? So third parties and everybody rallies around and often refer to it as being a marathon. There's sort of all this work, all this training and the lead up to this big one-off event. You know, you could be ill the day before, the weather could be bad, you could incur an injury on this day, whatever it is, and it fails. And building a state of transition is about building that capability, about building that regular practice and continue to evolve with the market. And I think that's that's really important. And the market will continue to evolve. And I just want to sort of leave people with a thought around switching costs. And I did some work with MIT and I've subsequently done it with a client around what is the switching costs? And it will take your mobile phone as an example, Julian. You have a telco and you have a have a handset. Now, who actually really owns you as a customer? Is it the telco because they've got a great network? Or is it, do you have the, the handset? And ultimately, if that telco stopped providing that handset, would you take a handset of another, another type? Or would you actually move to another telco? And the majority of people you ask actually say that they'll probably move to another telco because 
the person who actually owns me as the customer is the person providing that handset. And so think about these things from a switching cost perspective and thinking about things that make it really easy for us to be caught into an ecosystem. And your mobile phone is a great example, but how are you creating that ecosystem for people to transact on content they value in the digital world? And I think about, you know, we'll go back to the old construction tendering process is if you look at the data that these organizations are gathering, some of them have rail road networks and some of them have real-time data. Now, would I subscribe to a service that would enable me to shave off an hour every week, two hours every week through an integrated proactive commute suggestion for my morning? I probably would. There could be some value in that, but ultimately who's going to own that data? And that's why it's really important to think about Mm -hmm. partnerships and thinking about how you actually create an ecosystem and the switching costs. And then there's things that are high level switching costs. So you make a big one-off decision and often people talk about within business, their electronic point of sale in your personal life or maybe a mortgage and you actually then choose your bank, you you, know, you go alongside that. And the, the switching costs are hard. It's a big effort. And are you creating sticky customers and an environment where they can transact on something they value and they, they don't want to leave you? Or are you creating an environment where you're offering a product or service that is a, a big one-off decision? How are you differentiating in the market and creating that switching cost? And not everybody understands that. And they, this needs to be understood in the digital digital landscape. It's not only market. It's points of differentiation and how you service that market. And then it's how are you creating switching costs and really thinking about that within your industry and your organization. And the final point I'll say is niches are great. If you go mainstream and it gets quite big, it's likely that somebody else will come on, come in and in over you. And you don't want to be in a race to the bottom because that's not sustainable business, particularly in this geography. If there's one big thing that you'd want the readers to take away from your book, just one big thing, what would that one big thing be? To learn and to be in a state of learning. And so my book has been written in a point in time and I think the fifth section of my book offers me the greatest opportunity with within the work that I'm doing now within my clients and what's happening in the broader industry and as we get into the 2020s to actually change that chapter and evolve it. And so this book will continue to evolve as the industry evolves. And I think that is the most important thing. And I, in some of my keynotes, I open with this. The people who are leading our organizations have began their career pre-internet. Mm-hmm. The people working within our organizations have actually predominantly only worked with the internet. The people who will be joining our organizations 40% of them are the millennial generation who have only known the world of the internet. Mm. And that is going to redefine how things will occur in this next decade. And that's why I've written the book and that's why I'm working with the organisations mm. I'm working within. And that's what really what I'm passionate about is because I think there's so much that is unknown. And so to conclude on is continue to learn. Mm. And you you mentioned a couple of uh, books that you you like. Are there any really specific books uh, or people that you think people? I, I, I love following Walter Isaacson's books, and I particularly love his Innovators book, which sort of catalog catalogs the history of innovation, and then brings that really all together in some good stories. And it's referenced within some of my books. Uh, so within my book, Peter Well co-authored What's Your Digital Business Model? 
I suspect there'll be a, an update to that book in the next two to three years. Uh, of Matt Peter, I, I don't know if he's going to do that, but it's such a good read um, and it helps get your juices flowing around digital. And then Peter Senge, which we didn't touch on, but I'm a big believer in loops and reinforcing and single loops and understanding what loops will do in the digital world. And I think his book on the fifth discipline will have a renaissance and it has actually had a renaissance. And uh, the first 120 pages of your book are, are really well worth reading. Okay. And if people want to find out more about you and the work that they're doing, where should they go? DavidBanger.com yeah. or changelead.com. So either or, and they'll find me there. And I am quite active on Instagram, which I have, which is my daily post. <laughs> and that's the things for the photos of the clients that I'm interacting with, or if I have an article go out. Of, at the moment, I have lots of articles being a recently published author. And then I have a weekly post on LinkedIn, which has that substance. And I'm trying to abstain from photos and just providing social updates on LinkedIn. Mm. And then we also have Facebook author and a range of other social media platforms, including Twitter. So they can find me there and I'm always, uh, will always endeavor to respond when somebody interacts. Okay. And so any last words on digital is everyone's business? Just thanks. Thanks for having me here. And I'd encourage everybody that is listening to this within Australia is to think about those geographies that are close to us and think about the emerging talent that's coming through this next generation and that may not have had the benefits that we've had in our society uh, because they are the people that we can really learn from hmm. and redefine our thinking. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because just even yesterday I was having a conversation with someone and they were talking about they, they're almost thinking of moving the whole focus of their business to, to an emerging niche in India of engineers and I thought well it's just an interesting statistically again in my keynote we talk about engineers there's more engineers that graduate every year in China than we have engineers in Australia mm. so just the, the the quality of thought that they can now that will now be available to a global market or service mm. a global market is unprecedented and mm. this will start to happen in mainstream as mm. digital business models emerge mm. well on that note Thank you so much, Dave, for uh, being on the Synergy and Leadership Podcast. Thanks, Julian. Absolute pleasure to be here. Well, that wraps up episode 102 of the Synergy and Leadership Podcast. Another awesome thought leader conversation for you to consider. This podcast is produced by my firm, Synergy Group, as a way of giving back to the leadership community. So if you are interested in having a conversation with us, I'd like to encourage you to head on over to the Synergy Group website, tell us what you liked about the episode, tell us who you'd like us to interview, or tell us what sort of content you're really interested in. As always, if you are an iPhone user, please feel free, head on over to the Apple site and leave us a review and a rating. It really does help us build awareness of the show. In next week's episode, I speak with another thought leader, Colin Ellis, who is the author of Culture Fix, How to Create a Great Place to Work. It's a fantastic interview, and until then, love to hear what you think. Happy listening. Okay.